0: I'm going to be in Luke 23, beginning in verse 26, and we're in a series called Why the Cross leading up to Resurrection Sunday here in just a couple weeks. And at the beginning of each sermon in these four parts, I've been reading the gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion and his death in the corresponding gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we will read from Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. I'm going to read the entire crucifixion account as well as the death of Jesus. And it says this. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, and I believe this is only in Luke's account, he says to the crowd and to the multitude, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. I lost my place. Where am I? It's, it's really long. It's like super, super, super long. And I put have in those spaces. Okay, here we go. They, um, oh, there we go. There we go. I stopped in the middle of the verse, verse 33. There we go. The, that is called the skull. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. hanged railed at him saying are you not the Christ save yourself and us but the other rebuked him saying do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong and he said Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he Jesus said to him truly I say to you today And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. In week one, we covered Jesus is my propitiation. In week two, we covered Jesus is my justification. And today we're going to cover Jesus is my reconciliation. Our key text for the sermon is going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll be walking from verses 14 and following, and we'll dive right in beginning with verse 14. This is what the text says. The Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. At first glance, this seems a little bit odd that Paul is saying something about Jesus' death and that because Jesus has died, all have died. And at first it's like, that doesn't make sense. People, everybody isn't dead. People are living. What exactly is going on here? What's happening is Paul is using the cross and teaching the cross in a spiritual sense, unpacking how the gospel is, the great unifier and uniter. And upon hearing the good news of Christ, about Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection, through faith in Christ, we are now united with him. We are one with Christ. And we experience covenant union with him, established through faith. It's kind of like it's kind of like a wedding ceremony. I mentioned this last week or a couple... Of, last week we served the city. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I did a, did a wedding ceremony this uh, past weekend, and um, it was on the beach, and it was, just, it was just amazing. And, you know, I love looking at these young, uh, the bride and the groom, and they've got this... You know, the look in their eyes It's just, like, so endearing, and they have no clue what they're getting into, but I'm just like... <laughs> just I kind of want to let them have their moment, you know, and so try to use nice and lovely flowery language, you know, at a wedding ceremony. And I kind of want to be real with them, but there's kind of a line, okay? I can only be so real at a wedding ceremony. I won't get invited back ever to do a wedding ceremony. And, um, you know, there's something interesting. If you think about this, there's something interesting that happens in this little ceremony, in this little situation. Now, uh, nothing really happens. I mean, if you look around, there's, there's... Nothing is built, nothing is constructed, nothing is done. There's, there's nothing about a wedding ceremony that is actually um, physically, tangibly different about the situation. Uh, nobody's hair changes color, uh, you know, no one changes clothes. I mean, it's just nothing, re- we're just all there in this like meeting and this, this thing happens and we just all, exp- but something profoundly happens that is unseen, so when, whenever, and I actually see a wedding co- a couple in the back who recently did uh, their ceremony. When, whenever a, a ceremony happens and um, a, a couple gets married, there's a civil aspect that's happening with, with the government. So there, there's a license and there's a legal process. And so something happens like in a civil aspect. There's also something that happens in like a relational aspect where these, where these two people are, are coming together in a unique relationship. But even more than that, something, there's a spiritual aspect that's happening in that moment. So when two people get get married and when they stand there uh, at the altar and say their I do's and their vows to one another, something deeply spiritual is happening in that moment. And no one can really see it. Like, you kind of feel it, you 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 know, you get the warm fuzzies and all those things. But something profoundly spiritual, there is a spiritual transaction that is happening in that moment. And really, only God is the one that can actually see it because it is unseen and it is spiritual. The scriptures would say that at the altar, when the vows are exchanged, two become one. They become one flesh, which is kind of a metaphor for helping us understand what's happening right there. They are no longer two in God's eyes. They're actually one. And so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ when you and I, through faith, through a vow, through confession, through speaking, through belief, we become spiritually one with Christ. And nobody can see it. There isn't any, nothing, nothing physically changes, nothing geographically changes, nothing real, but something changes that is unseen that's spiritual on the inside. Two are becoming one. And by the way, that's the, that's the whole purpose of marriage, just for the record, all right? Mar- marriage does not exist to make you happy, for those of you who are married. Uh, marriage, as you've heard it said, uh, exists to make you holy. In in the in I mean, God had infinite options at His disposal. He created humanity and he could, have done, he could have done anything with the genders, he could have done anything with the sexes, he could have come up with whatever he wanted, but he decided to create these two individuals who would complement one another and who would enter into relationship together and would share a bond and become one flesh and be united together, and the reason that he did it was because he was trying to give us an earthly picture of what it must be like to know God. And you don't even have to be married to get that picture. You, you don't even have to go through the whole wedding to, to understand that. But it's a physical representation. It's an earthly picture of something that's deeply and profoundly heavenly and spiritual to become one. And the reason the cross is important and critical is because through faith, we share in what Christ accomplished. We become one with him. And even in his death, if you are in him, there's something in you that died as well. And because the Father sees us as one with Christ, when Christ died, we did too. And the cross was necessary in order to unite us to God, which is Paul's basic idea. Then he says this in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, which is just a great little line right there. All right. I mean, it's just a great little line. I think you could use that. You could apply that in a thousand different ways. It's a totally different sermon, but it's a super good point. We should not operate with one another in according to fleshly terms. Okay, there's something deeply, profoundly spiritual that's happening in the way that we operate as the church and his kingdom, and we got to make sure that we're not operating according to the flesh, that we're we're going higher, okay? We're going higher in a spiritual sense. So even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in Christ Jesus, when he died on the cross, he buried sin and shame. He took it into the ground with him. He took it to the grave, and the old is gone, and the new has come. And that was the point of Jesus dying in our place. So therefore, because we are in Christ, when he died, the old died too. And the new has come, which means... Whatever, your life, whatever your, your life was before Christ, that died. It died. It went into the ground. Jesus' blood and his, his body covered that. It is, in God's eyes, dead. It went to the grave. And you're new now. You're new. You're, you're a new creation. It's, it's kind of like, sounds a little weird saying this out loud, but it's kind of like there's two Ethans. Like well, you're one. You're one. No, there's spiritually speaking, uh, it's it's like there's it's like there's two Ethans. There, there's there's not one of me, but there's two of me in in a, in a spiritual sense. One has died, and, and then one, and a new one was was born. This is what the scriptures refer to in spiritual rebirth. So there's an Ethan, there's an identity, there is an old Ethan that has died and needs to stay dead and not be resurrected, and then there's a new Ethan that's been created in a new person who is very different than the old one. And there's two of you. Look at your neighbor, say, there's two of you. Please don't post that on social media. It will not make sense. People are like, what is this loony preacher saying? There's two of you, like, okay, you, I gotta, you need the context, you, you need to understand And I feel in my spirit today that someone has been identifying with the wrong you. It's the wrong you. It's the wrong you. And the problem with that line of thinking, that thinking, you know, that thinking that you've been in in a hamster wheel about is it's the wrong you. The problem with that relationship is that it's the wrong you. The The problem with that recurring sense of anger towards your kids is that it's the wrong you. The problem with that pattern of anxiety is that it's the wrong you. The problem with that sense of shame and fear is that it's the wrong you. I wish I had a witness in the house today. It's the wrong you. It's the wrong you. It doesn't belong anymore. Don't give it real estate in your mind or in your house or in your marriage or in your church. It's the wrong you. It's the wrong you. It's died. It's gone. And so here's what you need to recognize, only the cross can provide you with a new you. Only the cross. If you want to do yoga, that might help. If you if you want to center yourself through meditation, I love meditation. If you want to discover yourself through mindfulness or whatever, that's fine. But hear me clearly. There's only one thing that can take away your sin. There's only one thing that can take away your shame. There's only one thing that can kill the old you and create a new you, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And I feel compelled today to encourage some of you that you cannot solve spiritual problems with physical tools. You're like trying to recreate, trying to solve, trying to accomplish things spiritually with physical tools. Even, the, even Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And some of you are fighting a spiritual battle with earthly weapons, and let, let, me, let me specifically address the, the person in the room who is not yet following Christ. Maybe doesn't know Christ yet. Maybe hasn't yet surrendered their life to Christ. Maybe hasn't actually begun to follow God or give God their, their life. Salvation isn't accomplished from you being a good person or you trying harder or you just finally getting it right. Salvation is a spiritual issue and it can only be resolved by a spiritual resolution or, or spiritual tool. It's a heavenly issue. It's not an earthly issue. And Paul says that, hey, in Christ, you're now new. You're now new. Then he says this in in verse 18. He goes on and he, he continues and says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled. Somebody say reconciled. Jesus is my reconciliation. Through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, and he says, I'm just going to slow down, and I'm going to unpack it one more time to make it very clear. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, in the the commentaries, the the word here uh, for reconciled or reconciliation, it's it's the Greek word katalasso. It literally means to reestablish proper, healthy, interpersonal relations after these have been disrupted or broken. As well, it goes on and it says, um, it involves there's disruption of a healthy relationship because of presumed or real relational agitation. It's followed by behavior and actions designed to remove the hostility, thus restoring the original healthy relationship. And it says to reconcile us to make things right, with one another. Reconciliation is the process by which peace overcomes hostility, and it's the elimination of the hostility and the restoration of harmony. Reminds me of my own marriage. Um, my, My wife and I, this July, this July we'll be married for 12 wonderful years and two not so wonderful years. And I asked her if I could say that this morning, and she said yes. Um, the reason why I say that is because the first two years of our marriage were a disaster. I mean, it was just like, th- there's no like easy way to put it. You're like, well, this is, you're just doing preacher talk. No, it was, it was a disaster. Like, it was, it was not good. And I know what you're thinking. She's a hard person to get along with. No, that's not the situation. Um, that's not the case. She's the best. Um, no, no, if you. No, if, if, if you know me, you're very clear about what the problem uh, was. Um, and as we would try to figure this out, and, you know, we, we both have different, like, reactions to problems and situations, and um, she's, you know, the fight, flight, or freeze, she's, she's the fighter. I mean, she's just like, let's just do this. Let's go here. I mean, do we need to raise the volume? What needs to happen in order for us to do this thing? and I'm so not a fighter. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of a freezer, not really much a flight, but I, kind of, I just kind of freeze um, in this situation. I'm like, what is happening? All right, can we sh- shut it down? Like, this is not, we're n- like redo, like hit re- something is not, this isn't working. Um, and we would have to figure, it, figure out and, and navigate wh- what it looks like to actually have healthy relationship together. You, you know, in the dating uh, process, there's this thing called the DTR You know, if you're dating, it's like every week, you know, one of you wants to have a DTR. Can we define the relationship? Where are we, you know? Where exactly is this thing going? Well, once you get married, me and my wife, we call it the RTR, which is restoring the relationship. Which means at any, any point, if there's issue, offense, brokenness, challenges, whatever, somebody has to take the initiative and restore the relationship to overcome whatever the challenge was, whatever the hostility is, whatever the issues are, and then pursue the relationship and restore the relationship. Here's how amazing the reconciliation of the gospel is. Typically, a two parties become estranged or separated because of a wrong or a perceived wrong, That forms hostility, there's turmoil, there's enmity in the relationship. Then it takes one of the parties involved to initiate the reconciliation process, whereby the party recognizes the relationship is greater than the wrongdoing. And in reconciliation, there's an acknowledgement of guilt on behalf of one or both parties, as well as forgiveness is extended. And love becomes greater than the issue, which is why the scriptures say, love covers a multitude of sins. And reconciliation is not the minimizing of wrongdoings. Rather, it's the confronting of wrongdoings and overcoming them with love. And the reason the gospel is so amazing is because God did no wrong. God didn't do anything wrong for us to be at enmity with him. It was us. We sinned. We committed the wrong in the relationship. And though we were the wrongful party, we didn't initiate reconciliation. God did. And that's how amazing his his love is. And though he was under no obligation, he initiated the reconciliation process. And though he committed no wrong, he actually absorbed the punishment of the wrongs, which was death. And on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our wrongs, though he was sinless and innocent, and he was the spotless lamb. And through the cross, God is inviting us back into relationship with him. Like Paul says in, in Ephesians, the cross broke down the dividing wall of hostility. It removed the barrier for relationship and gave us the opportunity to enter in. Leon Morris, the, the, the chief commentator on the book, book of Second um, uh, Corinthians, he, he says this, From this point of view, the cross meant doing away with sin, breaking down the barrier that kept God and people apart, and thus the restoration of good relations. The reconciliation took place through the death of Christ. But here, here's where it's, it, it gets unique and important. Here's what else we know about reconciliation. Unlike forgiveness, reconciliation requires both parties to be involved. So just for the record, this isn't a sermon on forgiveness, but it doesn't take two parties to be involved for forgiveness to happen. You don't need to wait on the actions of someone else who wronged you in order to extend forgiveness to them. If you wait on them, you'll always be in bondage to their reaction. Forgiveness means I'm going to set myself free from even the things that they have done. And I'm going to extend forgiveness, not because they deserve it, but honestly, because I need it. And I'm no longer going to be held in bondage and captivity to someone else's actions or reactions to a wrongdoing or a situation. So unlike forgiveness, because forgiveness only requires one party, reconciliation actually requires both parties to be involved. This, this is like, you know, in, in culture, you, you hear the phrase racial reconciliation. The reason why racial reconciliation is such a challenge in our nation is because it requires both parties to be involved. It requires both parties to recognize the pain and the damage and the hurt and the impression, oppression and injustices and whatever were happened previously and are happening now. And then both parties acknowledging the wrongs and figuring out how to restore harmony where there is hostility. It requires both parties And the reason why it's so hard even in our society with this idea of race is because there is a perhaps an unwillingness of both parties to really do the hard work of what it requires to achieve reconciliation. See, reconciliation can only happen if both parties participate. So hear me when I say this. Christ died on the cross, but the power of the cross has absolutely no effect on your relationship with God unless you participate in the cross through faith. So therefore, the gospel is only applied to you through faith. It's only through surrender. It's only through trust and acknowledgement of your need of the cross that it's actually applied to you. But to all those who call out to God, who acknowledge him, who believe in him, who confess their need for him, they are saved. And Paul would go on and he would, he would say this in the last two verses and, 2 Corinthians 5.20, he would say, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. There's nothing more important. Just for the record. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more important than someone being reconciled to God for eternity. Therefore, those who have experienced the reconciliation we have with God, um, we are now ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, which is crazy that he uses us. We implore you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to be as clear as possible, Paul ends by telling us exactly what happened on the cross. The cross wasn't just some kind of theatrical spectacle. The cross wasn't just some kind of dramatized spiritual event. On the cross, Jesus became sin. In fact, it says the Father made him to be sin, which means God, spiritually speaking, was transferring sin to the sinless lamb, and he made him to be sin who knew no sin, and thereby allowing those who are in Christ to become the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God, it's a big term, but it just means being made right with God, having a right right relationship with him. And Colossians Paul would say in Colossians 1.19, so eloquently, for in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is the point of the cross. Jesus is my reconciliation. Jesus is my reconciliation. And I'll I'll end with the old hymn written by Fanny Crosby back in 1875 And she would say in the song, draw me nearer, draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Let us pray. Father, today, we recognize the reality that we are in a position of hostility against you. And that we need peace with you. We need a way made. A way of peace. Someone to accomplish peace for us. And so, Father, we, we thank you for the cross of Christ and what Christ has done for us in our place and for our sins. Father, as we just sit in this moment, we're mindful, Lord, that the reconciliation process and being reconciled to you requires two parties. So, Father, I just pray over the person today that needs to engage and participate in what you have already done for them through faith and receiving what you have accomplished. And then doing the work of making them new and spiritual rebirth on the inside. So, Father, we ask that you would um, lead us and direct us in this. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.